You want to be on a headset? Either is fine. Thanks. And do you get call-ins? We're starting. Uh. Hello, this is Nick Augustine, and I'm your host on this episode of Money Talk Radio, produced by ProServe PR Marketing, which is home of the ProServe Club in Chicagoland and Southern California. Please show your support for our programming by visiting and clicking the Like button on our Money Talk Radio Facebook page, and you'll find links to a variety of episodes. Don't forget that you can also listen to any of our episodes on demand, and you can find those at the radio show page at ProServePR.com. Support for both Law and Money Talk Radio comes from Chris McCarthy of Northwestern Mutual. Chris McCarthy provides individuals and business owners with expert guidance and exclusive access to Northwestern Mutual's life and disability insurance policies. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Today's show, we have a title of Australian and African Financial Markets with Robert Sharar. According to a recent study by Credit Suisse, Australia has been one of the best-performing and safest markets in the world for people to invest for over the last 110 years. So not just the last year or 10 years, but for the last century. Africa is also a hot spot for investing, and we'll discuss recent news about African markets as well. Robert Schrar is a fund manager of five international funds, including the only U.S. funds to focus exclusively on Australia and New Zealand. You can listen live to this program or on demand and learn about these opportunities. Again, our guest is Robert Sherrard. He's the president of FCA Corp. in Houston, Texas, a fee-only financial planning firm. FCA Corp. assists clients with domestic and international advisory and consulting services, focusing on real estate, financial planning, business, and investments. Mr. Sherrard is a member of the Florida and Massachusetts State Bars and is a certified public accountant in the state of Florida. Mr. Sherrard holds several advanced degrees, including an AA from Polk Community College, a BSBA in accounting from the University of Florida, MBA and JD from Northeastern University, and an LLM in taxation from Boston University Law School. You can find more information about our speaker, Mr. Sherrard, at his website for his company, which is www.fcacorp.com. Again, fcacorp.com. We do have a special offer for our listeners, either on demand or listening live our special offer giveaway all you need to do is send me an email at the following email address nick n-i-c-k at proservepr.com which is p-r-o-s-e-r-v-e-p-r.com and mention that you like law and money talk radio programming and i'll send you a free copy of my book which is part of the nick's guide series for diy marketing and the title is first floor seo tips and updates the february 2012 edition now we do have uh, some opportunities for callers uh, on our show. The telephone number to dial in is 917-889-9732 and press option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. Uh, telephone number again, 917-889-9732 if you're listening live in option 1. Uh, of course, when our guests are licensed professionals, there are limits on what they can answer uh, and we try to be mindful of that. Uh, so if, please uh, your, narrowly tailor your question to our topic. Uh, on our shows. Um, we have a general disclaimer that this is a general information and entertainment-based program, and advice shared on our show does not constitute professional advice. Communication with licensed professionals on our show does not create client relationships, and ProServe PR marketing does not necessarily endorse all the opinions expressed by guests. Finally, all callers are confidential and rights to this broadcast are reserved. Now, some topics we're going to cover in our hour show today. We're first going to talk about a brief introduction with Mr. Sherrard and the Credit Suisse report uh, regarding some interesting news from Australia and New Zealand. Then in our second segment, we'll talk a little bit more about Australian and African funds more in depth, followed by our third segment where we'll look at a 20-year review of lower Pacific Rim fund activity and then forth our future outlook for Australian and African markets uh, and safety in investing and in, in working with markets in those areas. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest, Robert Schrar. Good afternoon. Thank you for your time, Robert, today. And uh, why don't you first go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and your career path uh, that leads you now to be doing the work that you're doing. I've been involved uh, in the investment advisory business since 1975 when I started the firm FCA Corp. Uh, my background is maybe a little bit different than people in that market having 
a fairly high level of experience in accounting and also with the, the two law degrees, uh, that's given me a little different perspective. I think that's been very helpful as we deal in the global marketplaces because some of those skill sets, such as dealing with international accounting standards versus the U.S. gap, have been uh, a benefit to us as we look at companies around the world. Now, tell me a little bit about your your. I know that we're not going to talk too much about uh, your uh, firm or fund management, but you're our fee-based um, uh, outfit as opposed to uh, some others. Is that right? Uh, yes, we we've always uh, under uh, operated under a model that we charge our clients uh, a fee uh, for services that's not linked uh, to a transactional type of fee. So uh, we consider ourselves to be a fee-based planning firm. All right, very good. Now, you have started uh, getting involved in the uh, Lower Pacific Rim uh, some time ago. What sparked that? Uh, I first started investing in New Zealand uh, around the 1980s. Uh, My link with New Zealand came about because uh, at the turn of last century, uh, my mother's family split from Scotland with with her father coming to America and her uncle going to New Zealand. And I had family in New Zealand uh, that I never met uh, until the 60s uh, when one was able to come to America. And since that time, we've obviously all got to know each other very well. So when I went to New Zealand around the 1980s, I was quite intrigued with this marketplace that was in some respect very simplistic. Uh, New Zealand was starting to change from a sort of uh, very democratic but socialistic kind of economy to more of a free market and I started doing some investing there. In 1991, we had an opportunity to open an actual mutual fund, which is the fund we manage today and now called the Commonwealth Australia New Zealand Fund. So we have been actively involved for several decades in the New Zealand market and for a shorter period uh, directly in the Australian marketplace. And then uh, and then Africa picked up too as well. Uh, yes, uh, Africa is our newest fund. We launched that in November. Uh, once again, uh, our company has over 20 years of on-the-ground experience in Africa uh, on a quite broad basis, uh, not the whole continent, obviously, but, but in a large number of countries in several different industry aspects uh, on a direct basis. So uh, based on that experience and seeing what's happening in Africa and the opportunities there, we felt like it was a, the time was ripe for us to take that and, and open a mutual fund that would focus on companies that are traded on the African stock exchanges or whose principal business activity is in Africa. And it, it is somewhat interesting because, uh, you know, our, our other three funds, briefly, one is a Japan fund, uh, the other is a global fund that can invest in equities or debts anywhere in the world, and the last one is a, is a real estate securities fund that focuses on uh, global investments uh, and not just bricks and mortar but real estate-related activities. For people that have been to Australia and been to South Africa, you would understand that with that part of the continent of Africa, there's much more of a link with the uh, Australian marketplace than people would at first blush understand. Certainly, they all understand rugby. That's a good starting point. But both of those countries have uh, mineral resources. Uh, they also, uh, in Australia's case, uh, you know, they have a direct link into the uh, Asian marketplaces because of their location. But but we see a lot of similarities, and part of that's because of the Commonwealth links between Australia and uh, South Africa. But South Africa and Africa as a continent is, in many respect, respects, a quite different place because of the development trends, uh, the changes that have taken place. Uh, and, and obviously, uh, while South Africa is a very modern country, a lot of the rest of Africa is is, is just really emerging now on a fairly robust basis in terms of middle class and, and more economic development. Um, you know, one of the things we've done um, uh, on our website, because I taught in college for several years and still have somewhat of an academic bent to me, we decided with our Africa Fund to take the the tack that what we were going to do is provide people education on Africa. And, you know, people can invest in Africa not just through our fund. As you're probably aware, there are index-traded shares available uh, in some co- for some countries in Africa. Uh, there are also ADR shares that trade on the, the U.S. exchange or, or the over-the-counter markets that are shares for companies that trade in Africa. So there are ways for people to invest, particularly in the large-cap sector on the African continent. 
But what we did is, is on our website, which is CommonwealthFunds.com, uh, we have under our Africa section several things that I think people would find of great interest. Uh, the first is we have an interactive map that gives details on every country on the continent. But if you click on that, it goes to a very authoritative website. That's the CIA fact page. So on every country in Africa, one can quickly find out something about it. If you go to our uh, African Stock Exchange links, we've made it available for someone to be able to look up and access every stock exchange in Africa, uh, which uh, when I first started doing this research, it was not that easy to find this sort of stuff several years ago. But they, these have evolved so so rapidly that, that one can go online, and, and, we, and, our, and our site is a good way for someone to be able to, to learn that information. The other thing we've done, which I think people would find helpful on the site, is we have links to government organizations uh, as well as, as uh, development banks, regional economic alliances, and other country fact kinds of things that if you want to do your own research on Africa, uh, independent of what we're doing, we think people will get comfortable with the idea of invest, investing in Africa. And that's really where there's a big education process that has to occur for a lot of people to understand that, and we can talk more about that uh, a little later in the program. Okay, wonderful. And as far as New Zealand and Australia, I'm sure you have um, some resources on CommonwealthFunds.com as well? Uh, yes, we do. Uh, because those markets are a little bit better known, we have a little bit different type of information uh, available there. But but at all, our, our site, we think, is, is reasonably robust in terms of providing information uh, that, in, that in most cases in, is independent of us. We, we just have found these sources of information that we've found useful. Uh, many of them are government-related uh, sources, and, and uh, there's something that someone can go to in an easy way to find that information. Excellent. Now, uh, calling your attention to this Credit Suisse article, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, their article uh, dealt with uh, looking at global markets, and what they found is that the Australian market in particular has been a good place to be, not just on a short-term basis, but on its long-term performance numbers. And I think that uh, surprised some people when that came out, but it really shouldn't. I mean, I think the first thing Americans don't appreciate is there is a, there is a much bigger world out there, and we're not the only people that have invented things. For example, I believe the Johannesburg Stock Exchange has been in business for almost 150 years. Uh, and so we think of everything being uh, you know, more captured by us in a, in a more recent time frame. And Australia has always played a position where it was the ability to produce resources, natural resources, uh, that the world uh, needed. Its population is, is relatively small as compared to the size of the country, although some of the country is not that inhabitable. Uh, in, uh, and that's what they're seeing now with some of the resource extractions. But, but it's just been, it's been a good economy. It's been well-positioned uh, to grow over the years. And we think that it has you know, some great opportunity ahead of it uh, for several reasons that uh, we, could, we could talk about. All right, excellent. Um, natural resource, you know, the brain drain, I always hear, I hear people talk about the, the need for jobs. We'll talk about that a little bit more um, in the future segments. But another thing we're going to talk about is the uh, future outlook for Australian and African markets. Um, generally speaking, and we'll drill down further in this, um, you see this as a continuing uh, growth area for long term? Uh, yes. I mean, I think each area has a, has a little bit different growth aspects to it. Uh, what, what you'll find is that with Australia and New Zealand, uh, they have some unique products that the world needs. New Zealand has water, and New Zealand exports water. I call it virtual water. Uh, they don't load the water in a tanker and ship it, you know, thousands of miles somewhere. What they do is, because they're they're so plentiful water, uh, you can look at the South Island and the aluminum plant at the South Island exists because of the ability to have hydroelectric power. Uh, they're exporting their power, essentially, water created in the form of aluminum. Uh, food products. Uh, natural grass is, is uh, very common in New Zealand. The rainfall is heavy enough to do that. So they export this virtual water in the form of, of, of food products, so whether it be meat products or dairy products, et cetera. And if you start thinking about the developing markets, China and other places of the world where the middle class is coming about, the first thing people do is try to improve their standard of living in the form of what they eat. And it takes a tremendous amount of water to produce most agricultural products. And with shortages of water in the world, New Zealand is well positioned, whether it be timber, food products, 
or even exporting something like aluminum uh, to benefit from, the, the, from that large resource of water they have as a country. A very uh, in, important topic uh, with water, especially for those of us who live in places that don't have natural freshwater supplies. It's a more common, common problem. Absolutely. We're going to pause for our first break here and give you some event messages and then come back and uh, speak in further depth of some of the topics within New Zealand, Australia, and African markets and investing. And we thank our guest, Robert Sherrard, for being our guest this evening. Our uh, first event we want to let you know about is part of the Get More Clients and Grow Your Practice series. We had our second session last night with our, our colleague, Jim Thompson, talking about changing the referral mindset and the value of uh, referral marketing, something that... Uh, most of our finance uh, audience are, are well acquainted with, and our lawyers are are getting more um, acquainted and up to speed with adopting some of these new principles. Well, our next uh, monthly Get More Clients, Grow Your Practice series takes place on Wednesday, March 28th. Again, these are always the fourth Wednesday of the month at 7 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Pacific. And the March 28th topic, I will be... Uh, taking the reins on that one, talking about different content, content generation, what you can do with content in various written and media forms, also publication and uh, leveraging that content. We have some uh, really great professionals out there who have written uh, beyond blogs and have produced books and videos and other resources for the professionals, and we're going to talk a little bit in depth about how to approach some of these things, whether you are already on your way or are just getting started. Um, this is, again, it's you can join it. It's a teleconference, and you can follow along on a PowerPoint that we put on the workshops page at ProServePR.com. Uh, Jim and I agreed for the first three courses to offer them free with a suggested donation of $25. But after our March event, the free offer terminates, and we'll be charging $25 per course per event. Of course, we use the honor system and trust you will send in your payment and so forth and, and so on. Um, also, uh, but to entice you to uh, check out the ProServe Club, the ProServe Club is our new member only section of our website and when you join the ProServe Club for $30 a month you get free attendance to all of our teleseminars and webinars with your paid membership. We have more things coming to you in the future. Uh, this summer we're going to be announcing our series on homeowner rights and how to get back in a home after a foreclosure event. So again March 28th 7 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, the third uh, session of Get More Clients, Grow Your Practice, all on developing and leveraging great content. Also want to let you know quickly about the Nancy Minard event coming up, too. Nancy Minard is a professional in Chicago. She runs Leaded Limited, and this is a wonderful way to uh, attend this event and earn uh, 6.5 per uh, 6.5 credits of uh, Illinois uh, MCLE professional responsibility credits. Again, those ethics credits can be hard to find. You can get your entire year's worth uh, in one day for the family law attorneys. The Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism approved the substance of the title is refocusing custody issues on the best interests of the child. And I, I believe I misspoke at 6.25 hours of professional responsibility credit. This event takes place on March 16th here in Chicago. Again, refocusing on family law issues on the child. Whether you're a litigator, a child's representative, a mediator, or a collaborative fellow, or a collateral support person, or an individual with clients who have special needs, the program is for, uh, not for you as well. And again, this is a must program for attorneys who handle parentage cases as well as divorce cases. For more information and pricing and opportunities to apply for a hardship or non-for-profit uh, rates, you should get in touch with Nancy at nancyledded at gmail.com, N-A-N-C-Y-L-E-D-D-E-D -D -E -D at gmail.com to enroll today. Again, this will be taking place here in Chicago on March 16th. It's an all-day event. You can attend the morning or the afternoon session. Again, from Nancy Minard and Leaded Limited. Now we get back to our show with our guest, Robert Sherrar. And we're going to, on our second uh, session, uh, second segment here, talk a little bit more about some Australian and African funds. Um, Robert, uh, or do you want to start with Africa or Australia? Uh, why don't I take a minute with Africa? Uh, All right. And I think that uh, it would be interesting. Uh, there was a very good article in The Economist, uh, actually, uh, about uh, the, the byline was the Lion Kings. And what it pointed out was that uh, Africa is really now one of the world's fastest-growing regions, not just for looking to the future, but the historical numbers over the last decade have shown this to be the case. 
and it's not centered in just one country. In fact, South Africa is somewhat of a laggard in the absolute growth rates. What's driving this is an emerging middle class, uh, improved governance in a number of countries, improvements in the infrastructure, and the ability to begin to fill voids for the world in terms of manufacturing activities, tourism, and, of course, the commodity exports. But Africa is showing signs of moving away because many parts of Africa are not resource-rich, and, and therefore things like manufacturing could be a very viable option there. I think a lot of people will be surprised to learn that these growth rates mirror Asia, particularly if you uh, exit out uh, the China factor there. So we think that uh, it, there's going to be tremendous growth there. It's already been demonstrated uh, from reality over the last decade that it's happening, and we see it happening more and more. The population is becoming better educated. The young middle class really, really is pushing for reforms and their educational training is very similar to what you would get in the U.S. I mean, I meet people that are all the time that are that are very competent in a wide array of fields, uh, whether it be business or, or medicine or other activities that are trained on the continent. They were not educated outside the continent of Africa. Now, you, you talked about this increasing consumer class in Africa. Um, Again, can you tell us again a little bit more about different industries and sectors where you see people um, doing their opportunities and for investment capitals, particularly what uh, types of jobs? What we, what we see happening a lot uh, in terms of the consumer side is the access to consumer goods, such as supermarket. Uh, you're seeing uh, supermarkets that would rival what you'd expect to see in the United States cropping up all over the continent. What else? Um, the other types of things that, that uh, we're seeing as a part of that is the goods that would parallel that. I mentioned uh, the supermarket side. Uh, not through our fund, but several years ago, we invested in two real estate shopping center projects in, 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 in uh, a country in, in eastern Africa. Little did we ever think that our tenant would eventually be owned by Walmart. You know, Walmart has made a big uh, investment uh, to go through South Africa and through the rest of the continent uh, in the retail side of this. And I think they're doing that because they recognize these opportunities exist for there. We see really right now five major areas that are going to promote growth on the continent. Uh, the first of that is tourism. We think that there's huge advancements taking place in the tourism area. As the other emerging markets start to uh, travel more, uh, we think that Africa is going to be an attractive place to visit, not, not just for people from Europe or America, but from Asia also. I mean, people love to see the animals and other things there, and so tourism is really a great upside. Of course, mining is going to continue to be a major factor in a number of countries, um, and with that will come all the support activities you need to be able to carry that out. Much of that will be local. There's a commitment on the part of, of the region, particularly in southern Africa, to work cooperatively on infrastructure. In fact, I think Africa has watched the European Union, and, and what many countries there have figured out is they want to be an EU without the, current, without the common currency and without necessarily all the strings attached to that, but they are certainly cooperating on things like infrastructure projects in a big way, whether that be power plants or highway systems. So this whole infrastructure, the building of this, these systems, the maintenance and operations, I mentioned the consumer side. I think that's a huge upside. And the other is agriculture. Uh, they can produce a lot of goods and services uh, on the continent, and you're seeing agricultural production, for example, sugar in a number of countries is very profitable. They're getting away more and more from the crops like tobacco. You're seeing products like tea and coffee. Uh, maize is grown mostly for local consumption. But you're seeing these other products that have export value to them, uh, and those are being developed professionally. Uh, I see some of the farms, and they're, they're, they're well run. They, they look uh, modern, everything from bringing irrigation activities to better science in terms of growing the crops themselves. Now, I, I'm guessing that there are uh, – <laughs> 
Well, I don't know really much about the real estate uh, market over there. I've never actually thought about it. Um, I suppose with a lot of U.S.-based companies taking stock in operations in Africa, you have people moving. Do you see a large uh, amount of influx of U.S. residents and other um, you know, first world you know, areas moving into Africa? Um, out, step aside from South Africa for a minute. Uh, what we see is the demand from housing is not so much from the expat market. That's that's always been there. When the expats go into these countries, their standard of living, on average, had been higher than the local population. They tend to gravitate towards the better housing that's available in those marketplaces. But what we're seeing more and more of is is the local demand for these types of things, whether it be single family types of, of living or or apartments that would would be. Uh, mirror some of the types of things we would see in the U.S. Uh, uh, you see more and more of demand for that kind of product by the local marketplace. The access to home mortgage financing is important. Uh, there's been a lot of steps taken to make it possible to get liens on your property. You know, in some countries the land was tribal, and and therefore you couldn't really go borrow to build your house. They're figuring out ways to get around that to be able to get uh, essentially title protection on it, and. That type of housing is, is going to be a big demand just for meeting the local needs for this type of product. So there are opportunities, and that's one of the reasons I mentioned our real estate uh, fund. We we do invest, invest globally on that, and one of the things we've looked at is not necessarily looking at the end bricks and mortar, but looking at all the compositions that go into supporting bringing about that bricks and mortar. So whether that's a cement company, whether it's a title company, um, people that make, uh, you know, uh, power units and other things for these properties, we continue to see huge demand for this uh, from this this emerging middle class. It's an urbanization taking place. They are not living on the farms now. They may have families on the farms, but once you get in an urban setting, you you have to have these kind of of services and and assets to live in because you can't just live on the land anymore. You have to have a more formal structure. Right. Now, you know, something that when you talk about an emerging middle class, uh, I I know that, um, you know, people listening are likely saying, what happened to our middle class here in the U.S.? And that's, you know, we see so much going on in the world of politics now. And, of course, ours is not a political show. We're neutral and objective. Um, When I think about a middle class uh, emerging in Africa, I wonder about some of the other forces in the world of economics and politics that might – make that a more or less attractive uh, type of a situation. Uh, so I guess my general question is, what is the political climate uh, like there, and how do people find it? Well, you, when you talk about political climate, you have to go country by country, and you have over 60 different views of that, depending on which country you're in. There are some parts of Africa that you can read on the paper every day, and they're clearly uh, a mess. Uh, but there's other areas where democracy is working. It's being tested sometimes, but, but you're having situations where they're now into not just their first time they ever elected a president, but the third or fourth time of doing that. And and that's a really big thing because it means that the power has been transferred without guns being involved, without coercion, but through a democratic process. Uh, and, and so... Uh, we see in many countries uh, great things happening. And I think in the SADAC region, you know, Africa has really broken up into a couple regions of economic influence. And if you disregard for a moment uh, the northern part of Africa, uh, Egypt and those areas, over through Morocco, what you have is uh, you have the East African community, which really uh, is, is focused on Kenya and the countries uh, around Kenya. Most people would have a feel where that is. And then you have uh, the the SADAC region, which is the Southern African Development region, and those 15 countries are at the bottom of the continent. And then you have ECOWAS, which is the uh, economic community of West Africa, which uh, focuses on the English-speaking countries in in the western part of uh, the African continent. And then you have the CFA region, which is the historically French-influenced countries that have their own economic blocks there. And... And so uh, what we're seeing is uh, there's there's really a great movement taking place in the SADAC region. Mozambique is making great strides. Zimbabwe, even though it's in many respects dysfunctional, uh, we're seeing signs that uh, Zimbabwe 
uh, is, is identifying its future, and the people of Zimbabwe seem to be pushing more and more to realize that. They've been through terrible economic strife under Mugabe. Uh, and, but if you take that whole region, uh, transfer of people from country to country, uh, education is being lifted up, uh, transparency in the government dealings, uh, multinational, African multinationalism, I'll say, in terms of country, companies doing business in a number of countries within the African continent, that's increasing very rapidly, and I think those things open up the transparency of these economies in a big way. Are you, are you there? Yeah, I'm on, Dick, I'm, I'm sorry. The other line went dead. I've just transferred over to another line. I, I, just, realized, I just realized that I was um, – I'm continuing with our break here. I was telling people about the ProServe Club and didn't realize I had myself on mute. So love technology when you use it correctly. Anyway, I was – Let me get rid of it. Go ahead. Um, sorry about that, folks. I was suggesting that the ProServe Club is our members-only resource site. Um, we open up March 1st. 2012, and have content with law firm marketing and publicity, exclusive invitations to meetups and networking events, uh, followed by case studies of successful marketing campaigns, niche practice area advice and daily tips, also uh, archives of our law and money talk radio shows, as well as PR blog articles, uh, followed by attorneys in transition articles. We also have the Chicago Now Living Lincoln Square section, Rainmaker VT, which is Rainmaker Virtual Training, and uh, some upcoming events and seminars. And really the the thought behind this and uh, reason that we did this is to encourage uh, the DIY community, uh, a lot of lawyers, finance, and other business professionals who are interested in tackling PR and marketing on their own, um, we thought collectively that it would make sense to offer a one-stop shop so that solos and small firms could access the information that we uh, find from uh, the big firms and the uh, national leaders in marketing, uh, publicity, and uh, media relations. So, again, the ProServe Club will be open officially uh, on March 1st. And, again, members who join get all sorts of our content and uh, things for free. So, again, the ProServe Club, there's a tab. You can check that out at ProServePR.com. And that's all I have to say about that right now. Do check back uh, March 1st to uh, find the opening. Of course, your first month is free. Uh, that extends that offer. is a permanent offer that extends to everyone. First month is free and um, then $30 a month after that. Of course, people who join now at that in initial presale uh, rate will will have that rate uh, for life. Uh, rates will be changing uh, soon, um, but our, again, our pre-sale rate $30 a month for the ProServe Club. All right, back with our guest, Robert Sherrar, and again, I apologize for a uh, short technical difficulty there. Um, we're talking about Africa uh, in our sec earlier segments. We're going to talk a little bit more about media treatment. Um, Robert, what have you seen as far as uh, word in the media? Because, again, we don't hear too much about Africa, Australia, or New Zealand. We hear so much about the Europe markets 
um, and, and, and about China and our own domestic issues here. We don't hear so much about Africa. Why is that? Well, I, I think it's a, a lack of uh, focus uh, and a lack of knowledge on the continent. Uh, you know, many of the people that uh, uh, have focused on Africa, you know, have tended to be involved in, in either some of the aid programs, which certainly in many cases are laudable efforts, uh, or other more politically oriented types of things. And the American business community really is is quite a bit behind uh, on what's going on there. I mean, the Europeans have done trade in a big way with Africa, but they've assumed they have a right to. They're entitled because of the colonial history and so forth, which is not the case. And I've found in most countries very open doors for American business people. Now, one of the things that's happening now is China is very aggressively going into Africa. They realize the Africans have the resources, just like they've tried to buy up Australian companies, uh, several of the Chinese uh, businesses have done that. I mean, I think it was an offer for Rio Tinto, for example, uh, for one of their operations. And um, what's what's happening is they're going into Africa in a big way. Now, unfortunately, in some countries, there's not much transparency, and corruption is just beneath the surface. And the Chinese have functioned well in that environment. And and I've had some personal knowledge of things that that really are not uh, in the long-term best interest of the countries they're in. What's interesting, though, is the local people, I think, are figuring that out fairly rapidly. Uh, and, I, and I'm not talking about Chinese business being bad in the sense that there are no good Chinese companies to deal with. Certainly there are a lot of them. But oftentimes they're parastatals that are showing up in Africa. And, uh, and their objectives and their mannerisms are different than what a normal business would be doing. And what they're trying to do, as I see, is corner the resources, uh, you know, uh, make favor with the politicians, uh, to see that that happens, and uh, whether that's transparent or not doesn't seem to be a big issue. But it's putting a huge amount of money into the continent right now in many, many countries as they develop infrastructure projects and, and, and some mining activities, et cetera. But the U.S. business does have a great opportunity, and I think the media is just behind the eight ball on this. They, they really are somewhat ignorant of what's going on. Uh, they tend to only cover the adversities and, and not the successes. Mm-hmm. Well, um, what type of media efforts? I know that you uh, are. I know you said you have some books and you've done media uh, interviews. Have you spoken extensively? And are there some resources where people can find uh, some of those links? Uh, yes. What I mean, well, what what we're doing as a company is, in a small way, trying to uh, to to change that dimension. And uh, we're doing that through a lot of educational initiatives. We've teamed up now with several different colleges and universities. Uh, to do training programs both in Africa and in the U.S. Uh, we're encouraging those groups to go over there, and as they do, uh, they come back with a much better knowledge and, and links to be able to do business on the continent. Uh, we certainly uh, you know, believe that, uh, uh, that the upside for America of doing that is, is huge. Uh, because Africa is going to be the growth story uh, of this next decade and maybe longer. Uh, I think something like uh, uh, six or seven of the top ten countries predicted on The Economist are African-based countries in terms of their growth rates over the next five to six years here. So um, our failure to focus on these opportunities, I think, when you have a stagnant Europe still having to go through tremendous change and social change and everything else, with the U.S., being bolstered by everybody's fears of the rest of the world, so we're getting a false uh, sense here of our our currencies, uh, and and even you know China with a few hesitations going on there economically. There is a great opportunity in particular in the African continent. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there, I think there's a different. You know, we talked about Africa. I think going back to Australia, New Zealand, a second. There's nothing like being able to do in the deal in the time zone of which you're you're based. And you have to remember, if you look vertically, that New Zealand and Australia exist within the Asian time zone. I mean, they clearly have one foot in Asia, but they have a culture that's, that that most Americans can be comfortable with. And I think you're going to find a lot of of business push through Australia in particular, up through Southern Asia. Because it's a good place to base your people. It's a good place to operate from when you don't want to put all your resources into those other countries, but you want to be able to better service them in the same time zone. Right. And and I think that's a huge advantage uh, for Australia uh, itself, even more than New Zealand, 
in terms of having it become the anchor for more and more things. And I think you have to look at politically what's happening. Uh, in fact, uh, political. There actually is those who follow Australian politics. There's a, a major thing happening right now because uh, what's transpired is that uh, their foreign minister, uh, basically on a roadshow out of the country, has announced he's going to, in their parliamentary process, uh, take on the current prime minister, which is, they're the same party, and it's just, it's kind of interesting. Nobody knows how that's going to fold out, um, but uh, there's going to be some excitement in the Australian politics. But from a business side, they they have a couple fundamental problems right now. Uh, and I think these are problems better to have than the ones other people have. The first thing is their interest rates are too high. But that's because the Reserve Bank believes they need to be careful to not uh, foster uh, reducing those rates at this stage because they're very fearful that that will overheat the economy. Uh, the, you know, and I think that's a, that's a big issue. Uh, the second thing is their dollar's too strong. Uh, so that's hurting their non-resource, ex- their non-export resource exporters, uh, and, and that can be dysfunctional. I think somebody named it the Dutch Elms disease. But, but basically, Australia is trying to come to grips with how do you maintain your other businesses when you have an overvalued currency and a high interest rate. But you know what? As those start to go down, if the currency essentially cheapens a little bit, that's going to help their export market, not hurt it. And if their rates go down, that's going to take some pressure off their, their currency. And that's a good problem to have, whereas, you know, we have the other scenario that, that uh, our dollar here, you know, could end up uh, being more damaging to us, and our rates are non-existent, so it's a dysfunctional economy we're in right now. And that there's, there's you can talk about rates, but there's no funds available. The Australian marketplace has funding. You can go to banks and borrow money. But they've never, they never lent on homes the way we did in the U.S. They never opened that Pandora's box that uh, virtually no money down and the bank owned the property. They've always been more conservative, and that's why even though their property market is, is a little bit frothy, uh, they're going to survive it, I think, unlike the, the gut-wrenching issues we went through here in the U.S. Yeah, you know when you talk about conservatism in um, places like New Zealand, I I don't think it was New Zealand. Maybe it was Australia that I heard that people could private non-lawyers could actually buy into uh, buy into firms and buy equity in, in law firms. Are you familiar with that at all? Uh, uh, no, I'm not. Uh, at least I, you know, I know that. Well, I, I'm not. No, I'm not familiar with that specifically. It's a very interesting uh, interesting thing. I hear uh, different bits of information from people about just the the style of um, the style of business and some of the morals and values and things that are driving business decisions. And like you talked about, um, not you know d- being a little more conservative with uh, with mortgages and the way that those securities are handled, um, I think is an interesting thing. I'm just curious as to you know where else that pours over. I'm not sure. Well, one thing you'll find, and going back to Africa, this was one of the things that amazed me uh, when we made our first significant investment there back in the mid-'90s. Uh, we were in a, in a country, the name of the country is Malawi. Uh, Malawi is, is viewed as, a, as an economically depressed country. Uh, the pop, per capita income is pretty low. And I discovered two things early on. One is economists don't know what they're doing in many cases because when they determined the uh, the per capita income, they disregarded sort of self-created assets. So I would drive around the country and see people in, in houses that were modest, but they had built, they'd killed their own bricks. Out back they had a crop of corn growing, but the economists didn't know how to measure that. So when they talked about, they only talked about the cash economy per capita, and, and, and there's a lot of difference. In some countries, people have no houses to live in. They have no crop in their backyard. So so the the measurement of wealth was was off. The second thing is, when I asked for some financial information, I learned that two of the major accounting firms had had offices there for over 25 years already. And I had no trouble having a meeting and somebody talked to me about accounting issues just like I was having a meeting in the U.S. And when I got the legal documents, I found they were more structured. Their board meetings were more formal because they're not worried about getting sued with everything they say. In the U.S., nobody wants to put anything in the board minutes because they're paranoid about lawsuits. They were much more open. <laughs> the records were better. They were more transparent. The regulatory climate was, was pretty tight on things. Uh, government required audits, et cetera. So in some respects, they could teach us a few things about doing business. Yeah, very what they don't have yet, uh, excuse me, What they don't have yet is the paranoia we've developed here 
go to Australia or New Zealand. I mean, they have regulatory climates. Do they catch everything? No, but they've decided that you can't make the world safe from everything. And at some point, the regulatory scheme can do more damage than good because once the regulatory authorities put in motion something, they never can stop it, even when it's no longer needed. And and if you look, I was at lunch today with uh, with two other professionals, and we were talking about the difficulty of establishing a small business in America today. It's just huge, and that's hurting our competitiveness because you really can't you can't do that. So there's much more room for entrepreneurism in these other marketplaces than the U.S. has. And and I think the other thing that struck me, I was at dinner last night with a group of about 20 people, and we were just sitting around talking, and I realized, and these are people I know from a social setting, and I hadn't really focused on what everybody did, over of the of the ten couples that were there, four of them today are their jobs are directly linked to Australia. They're working on LNG plants. They're doing things for as U.S. They're working for U.S. engineering firms and others. Their job is dependent upon Australia. Hmm. Hundred percent. Yeah, because and so of these, all these are big facilities. And these are people that you um, are you in Houston now? With the I'm, in, I'm in Houston. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And these are, these are people that are in engineering firms. They were they weren't with the same firm. They were with four different firms. And yeah. I said, wait a minute. I mean, I hadn't even focused on how much of our economy right now is focused on these marketplaces. And so you were, that's your earlier comment you made about jobs. I mean, uh, you know, there, there's a shortage of, of people in Australia to do the work. Um, and and so they're they're having a fairly smart immigration policy that they're allowing people to come in, but there's not a floodgate. They're smart enough to understand that they've got literally hundreds of millions of people within a few hours of them to the north. And they've got to be realistic. This is, it's a huge country with a small population, so they're trying to manage immigration in an intelligent fashion to be able to allow them to, to build. And their newest immigrants, I don't know if you know this, are U.S. Marines. <laughs> you know, wow. we've, we've, we've put a, a group of U.S. Marines in the northern part of Australia and relocated them there as sort of part of our, our Asian strategy. So, uh, and the Australians have been very gracious to allow us to do that, as we had to lose our bases and activities in other parts of the world, of the, of the, of the country, or the yeah. other part of the continent, rather. Yeah, we can learn so much from from other people. I think that one of our challenges uh, as Americans uh, in in this decade, you know, in 2012 and and beyond, is to um, to know when to say when and know when to look to other places. We're gonna pause quickly for our last set of uh, messages and then round out our show with our guest Robert Sherrar. Uh, want to remind you again that March 28th, mark your calendar, is the next session for the Get More Clients, Score Your Practice. That is going to be all on content and leveraging content. I want to also remind you about Nancy Minard and Let It Limited's uh, program on the best interest of the child. Again, that takes place here in Chicago, and that will be a 6.25 uh, professional responsibility ethics credit uh, opportunity for you, nancyledit at gmail.com for that information. Also want to let you know that here at ProServe Public Relations and Marketing, we have all sorts of relationships with uh, other partners, and we have a new uh, partnership with the Digital Advertising Group at the Orange County Register in Orange County, California. Uh, um, I personally will be writing content for their blogs for lawyers and experts in all sorts of areas. Uh, the Orange County Register is one of the premier uh, publications in uh, Southern California in Orange County. Also, I have uh, relationships with other uh, media groups uh, in other places, Chicago and uh, other places as well. So, um, you know, we do partner with people, you know, here at ProServe PR Marketing. We have a team of people that spans uh, all over the country. Um, it was important to have a virtual uh, program to, to help people all over. So, again, our newest uh, relationship and partnership is with the Orange County Register, and we're so excited about that. You can find more about the Orange County Register and their business blogs if you visit www.ocregister.com. All right, back to our show with Robert Sherrard. Robert, we talked a little bit uh, about some of the resources um, and things uh, in types of industries in Africa. In New Zealand, I want to make sure we don't leave anything out there, um, and also any other points that you want to uh, bring up in our remaining uh, 10 minutes here. Well, I, I think that uh, New Zealand uh, is, a, is a very interesting country. You know, It's a small population, highly educated, uh, a great deal of, of natural resources, not so much in terms of the mineral types of things, but in terms of water and, and ability to produce power and those types of things that will allow it to, to contribute far more to the global economy than you would expect from its size. It is a breadbasket bread uh, 
for the world. It's, it's one of the most efficient producers of agricultural products anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. The New Zealand market is an interesting market because it's not very big. Uh, you know, I, I, I've been investing there, as I say, since the 1980s. Uh, you know, you're talking, you know, I'll say 100 companies on the stock market. One thing that's always interesting is we're, we're limited by our own boundaries. I'll never forget when I first started going to New Zealand and I asked somebody about different companies, and they said, well, how would I, po- who, was a, who was a broker? They said, well, how would I possibly know that? You know there's over 70 co- companies listed on the stock exchange. So that particular broker probably followed 40 of those because their universe was 70. Now, obviously, in the U.S., where we have thousands of stocks, no, I don't know anyone that knows all those stocks, obviously. But but New Zealand is still a little bit that way today. We kind of laugh because uh, we we find things out about smaller companies in New Zealand uh, that sometimes even local people don't focus on. Right. What what uh, I think if you want to invest, what you want to be careful in international investing, and I think one of the mistakes people make is that if you go buy a, if you buy. A, Sony, for example, you bought a Japanese company, but have you really bought a Japanese market? I don't think you have. Or U.S. companies. You know, we were looking at, uh, at some U.S. companies, and we realized that most of their success depended on the products they exported to China. So have you really bought a U.S. company, or have you bought a company that's, that happens to be a Chinese market company? And most of the big companies you buy tend to react the same. So if the, if the market goes up, these larger companies are probably going to go up with the market. If the market goes down, they're going to go down. Whereas, you know, a farm and station company in New Zealand is probably their valuation is probably more influenced by the local market's perspective of rainfall and the crop productions uh, and how much goods and services the farmers are going to buy than it is on a daily basis what's happening to the world market. And so these stocks will delink the small caps will delink from the global markets in some respects. So diversity really does come into play. Now, when you buy the, the index shares, which are a way for somebody to get exposure, if you look closely, what happens is that you really are buying most of it's just a few large-cap stocks. They're heavily weighted to a few stocks. And if you look at Australia, for example, if you buy the index shares for Australia, what you're getting is a huge amount of, of mining companies and a lot of banks. You're, you're probably not getting the railroads. You're not, you're not getting the retailers. Uh, you're not getting much exposure. If you want to be exposed other than the market, you're not getting that exposure because what you've bought is something that's heavily weighted to the market caps and the larger companies, and oftentimes it's the ADRs you could have bought in the U.S. anyway. So while we buy ADRs in our funds, we try to find things that give exposure to something that somebody wouldn't get on their own. And that's where, you know, our, our several decades of trading internationally, uh, the relationships we build up has been so helpful to us in, in terms of being able to really reach into the markets and get information and be, in top, be on top of what's going on. Uh, now, the good news is that I can't think of a better place to visit than New Zealand or Australia. Uh, you could have far worse work assignments. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I'm going to be going on a 23,000-mile due diligence trip here shortly, and uh and and I'm hoping that my experiences will be as good as they would be if I was flying at Dockland Airport or something. Yeah, I just I just learned yesterday that one of the airlines I'm booked on looks like it's going out of business uh, in India. So that'll be interesting. Luckily, uh, uh, thank goodness for Continental's great service out of Houston. They've already helped me solve my problem. But but uh, you know, I'm sure it'll be a different kind of experience as we travel around India and and go to parts of China and and and, and then compare that with what's happening in Japan. Uh, as opposed to Australia and New Zealand, that marketplace. Yeah. The good thing about doing internationally is you get to see the world, and, and that certainly has broadened my perspectives. Reading is something else investors should do. If you really are serious about global investing, even U.S. investing, you would do yourself a favor of periodically picking up a newspaper from another country and reading it, because sometimes you'd be shocked about what we don't hear about in the U.S. or how naive we are about what's happening versus how the rest of the world sees it. And that's been a huge benefit to us, even in our U.S. portfolio investors, is stepping back and hearing what other people are saying, because they don't necessarily pick up the same print media we do. You know, here, if you read an article in one paper, every other paper in America has the same typing and the same print. The same article. the AP, right. What yeah, are some of your right. favorites? Well, I, I subscribe to the New Zealand Business Journal, for example, uh, um, you know, I've done that for many, many years, and, and, and they probably think I'm archaic, but I get the paper version of that. I mean, you can get it online, but uh, and I find by uh, 
by uh, uh, reading that that I'm able to really keep up on the not only New Zealand but Australia uh, on a regular basis with articles that would never show up in any national international paper mm-hmm. uh, at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the same thing. Uh, I enjoy, uh, you know, it, it would have been in South Africa of. of uh, you know, looking at their papers and the discussions they have, and 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 so uh, the the more you're able to do, I even have a friend who reads uh, the the foreign land, the papers in Europe in the in the native language, and and often shares with me because they don't say it the same way in the native tongue that we might think it get translated to English. Right. And that's interesting. We just read the English version, and what I've learned is that the English version is not necessarily what the local paper is saying either. Mm-hmm. So they're sometimes more direct with the readers or assume they know more, so they share it. And, and he showed me several articles that have come out of the German papers, for example, and, and some of the Dutch papers that are, are quite quite uh, quite different than what we think that the underlying tone of the article would have been. So so that you need to invest in that. And the other thing as an international investor you have to do, I mentioned uh, uh, the international financial reporting standards. Uh, the rest of the world... Uh, uses a different system of accounting than the U.S. And while everybody doesn't do it the same, they do it with a lot of similarities. And the U.S. is kind of balked. Our regulatory agencies have gotten involved here. We've slowed down the process. But financial statements, all financial statements are not created the same. And sometimes the information we get here in the U.S. is useful and other times it's not. And the international reporting is entirely different. A lot of that has been resolved. But I remember looking at financial statements out of Japan that didn't accrue for pension liability. Wow. Or looking at financial statements early on in New Zealand where they revalued their real estate every year to fair value based on some appraiser's guess, and they ran that through the profit and loss statement. So your profit and losses weren't realized. They were somebody's guesstimate as to value. So it's really important that you understand what the financial statements are on which these companies are built, and you and, and many cases they're not reporting on U.S. financial standards. They're using international financial reporting standards which may be better or worse, depending upon you know, the nature of those standards. You know, so the theme that I hear over and over is that there is a whole new world out there that's emerging, and um, there's been a lot of criticisms of technology influencing and detracting from our children really learning uh good uh, skills on reading, writing, arithmetic, and, and not only that, but learning who's a primary source of information. Um, and I think that the, an important point that you've made, Robert, that I'd like to drive home is that the information you're getting from these, uh, you know, a so-called primary source is also, you know, you look at look at the follow the money and follow who the advertisers are, and oftentimes you'll see why different publications are, are different. So, you know, I think that as we continue uh, towards a path of globalization, uh, you know, true globalization here, uh, we're going to see more uh, people hopefully uh, learning to think outside the box, find information for themselves, and not just, you know, believe everything that they ingest and um, to try to, you know, avoid some of the talking heads and uh, start digging deeper and asking questions of people who really know the real deal. Uh, I, I agree wholeheartedly, and I would leave you with a with a quick thought. We use the three R's: not reading, writing, and arithmetic. But real companies, real financials, real products. If you're going to invest in a business, you ought to be able to answer to yourself those three questions: Do you understand the business products? Can you read the financials? And do they act like a real company? Do they pay dividends? Do they do things that real businesses do? And if you use that simplistic approach you will avoid a lot of mistakes investors make. And we found that that works uh, because some companies are so complicated you can't understand them, and there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. Because they're smoke and mirrors. And, and and you should be able to look at a financial statement and and get some understanding of what the company is doing. And, if, and, and so those, little, uh, those three R's, I tell our younger associates that, hey, if you can't answer those in a simplistic fashion, you shouldn't be buying this company. Right, right. Also, flexibility and transparency, so key. Right. right. That's, that's, that's correct. Robert, we're running out of time. Give us some information again on how people can get in touch with you and find more about you and your resources. Well, thank you. Uh, our website, uh, commonwealthfunds.com, that's commonwealthfunds.com, has information on our five mutual funds as well as uh, the factual things I was talking about before, those useful links, and I think people would find that helpful. And the advisor is fcacorp.com. That's uh, F as in Frank, C as in Charlie, A as in Art, C-O-R-P.com. All right, well. Houston, Texas. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
And as we, as we, and I thank you for your time, Robert. And as you have more information, we'll probably want to do an update show because I really like this idea about uh, emerging markets and other areas. And I like the idea of bringing this to people who may be uh, too close to things uh, here at home in our sort of tunnel vision. So I hope that you're uh, open to an opportunity to come back in a few months and say hello again. Thanks, and I'll be fresh from a trip uh, halfway around the world. Actually, all the way around the world. This is my first time. I got in one, got on a plane in Houston and headed west and came back from the east, so uh, I'm going to circumvent the world. All right, well, good luck on your trip. We want to thank Robert Sherrar, and also we want to thank our uh, listening audience for tuning into this episode of Money Talk Radio, brought to you by ProServe PR Marketing and with support from Chris McCarthy of Northwestern Mutual. Chris McCarthy provides individuals and business owners with expert guidance and exclusive access to Northwestern Mutual's life and disability insurance policy, the Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Law and Money Talk Radio episodes are programmed to entertain and bring our legal and financial industry professionals, consumers, and guests, the tips, tools, and news they can use to be better informed practitioners and consumers. With our guests and listeners located from coast to coast and worldwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. Again, don't forget to share the links to our programming that you find on your Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Many people find our programs by those of you who share the links to our content. I thank you all again for your time. This is Nick Augustine for Money Talk Radio.